If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, the Lord remembers. To chapter 1, as we begin in verse 18. The Lord has just said that he is zealous for Jerusalem and will establish the people back in the land and establish his kingdom on the mountains. It's going to happen. But in verse 18, the Lord turns his view toward the other nations. It says, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. What do horns normally represent? Kings and kingdoms. Power, you bet. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? So he answered me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. What are those four horns? Somebody tell me. Babylon, Babylon Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. It's given in four different ways. First, go back to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. God told us all the way back in Daniel chapter 2 what all the major kingdoms that would rule the world, including the promised land, are. Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 31. It's a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that he told his wise men, tell me the dream and its interpretation. And he said, tell me the, the dream and then we'll lie to you. And he said, uh-uh, it ain't going to work. You tell me the dream first. And he said, that's not possible. So he said, okay, kill them all. And then I said, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a God in heaven who can reveal the dream and its interpretation. And here it is, verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze or brass, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Of course, that's Babylon, the head of gold, the Medo-Persia, the arms, Greece or Macedonia, the belly, and then the two legs of iron are Rome. Verse 34, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands. Anybody know who that stone is? Uh-huh, the stone that the builders rejected, it sure is. Which struck the image on his feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Was Messiah going to come establish his kingdom during the reign of Babylon? No, Medo-Persia, no, Greece, no, Rome. Yes, it's during Rome. Verse 35, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's the Messianic kingdom as is described in Isaiah 2 and Micah 4. Verse 36 says, This is the dream. Now we'll tell you the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Where did Babylon's power come from? From God. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand. And has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. Please don't miss that point. 
Yes, Israel went into the Babylonian captivity, but so did every other nation of the world. As we're going to learn in Jeremiah, it was for the same reasons. Because the other nations of the world were not following God's commandments either. If somebody says, well, the commandments were only for the Jewish people, then you say, well, why did God send all the nations into captivity for violating them? And it makes you think. Verse 3, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Which would you rather have, folks, gold or silver? Gold. That's why silver is inferior. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze or brass, which shall rule over all the earth. So these are empires that rule over all the known world. Verse 40, and a fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. That's Rome. Inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. What happened to the Roman Empire? It disintegrated, right? But continued its power through the Roman Catholic Church. Why was it that Henry VIII broke away from Catholicism and started Anglicanism. Because the Pope wouldn't allow him to divorce his wife. He needed the Pope's permission. If France wanted to go to war with Spain, who did they have to get permission from first? From the Pope. So the kingdom continued, but not in the same way. Verse 42, And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. In the days of these kings, which kings? The ten kings that are the toes, the revived Roman Empire, we call it. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other, another people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So the point, the reason we came here is to see when God said Messiah's messianic kingdom on earth would be set up. Not 3,000 years ago, not 2,000 years ago, not 1,000 years ago, but in the days just future to where we are. We see the same four kingdoms in Daniel chapter 7, but described differently. So let's look at Daniel chapter 7 just briefly. Nebuchadnezzar had the dream in chapter 2, but Daniel has the vision in chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. When Daniel has his vision, Nebuchadnezzar is long since dead. His son, Evil Merodach, is long since dead, and his grandson, Belshazzar, rules. So verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven. What does that mean, the four winds of heaven? The four corners, the four directions of the compass. We're stirring up the great sea. What is the great sea? That's the Mediterranean. Where were the Gentile nations of the world? They surrounded the Mediterranean Sea. So this is about the Gentile world. And four great bees came up from the sea out of the Gentile world powers. 
each different from the other. The first was like a lion, that's Babylon. Babylon, the lion tears and scatters its prey and is very powerful and had eagle's wings, conquered quickly. I watched till its wings were plucked off. That's when Nebuchadnezzar had to eat grass for how long? Seven years to humble him. And it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. That's when his senses restored and the kingdom is restored to him. And a man's heart was given to it. Suddenly another beast, that's Medo-Persia, a second like a bear. It was raised up on one side, meaning what? Of Medo-Persia, one kingdom is stronger than the other. That's why it's raised up on one side. And had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Talking about nations that it conquered. And they said, thus to it arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and there was another like a leopard. This is Greece, Macedonia, Alexander the Great and his kingdom. Which had on his back four wings of a bird. Alexander died without issue. Therefore his kingdom was broken up between his four generals. That's the four wings. The beast also had four heads. Again, indicating the four kings that come from him. And dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, that's Rome. Exceedingly strong, it had huge iron teeth, it was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. There's those ten toes of the image of Daniel chapter 2, the revived Roman Empire. Verse 8 said, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one. That's the Antichrist, the beast of Revelation 13, or false messiah, whichever term you prefer. Just write that one in your notes. Coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. So if there's ten and three are plucked up, how many are left? Seven. That's the beast that we see even in Revelation that has the ten crowns, but only seven heads. And there in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Does that make you think of Second Thessalonians chapter 2? It should. Yeah, that's the false messiah. Then in Daniel chapter 8, we see the vision again, but using different symbols. Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, so it's two years after chapter 7, right? Chapter 7 was the first year, now it's the third year, two years later. A vision appeared to me, to me Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan the citadel. Citadel means the capital. Shushan was the capital of which empire? Medo-Persia. But he's still in Babylon. Medo-Persia hasn't overthrown Babylon yet. Which is in the province of Elam. Boy, that's significant. Where's Elam? It's in Iran today, but it's down by the Red Sea. It's where they have the Bashir nuclear reactor that Jeremiah says is going to get wiped out of existence. That somebody, oh, maybe Israel, is going to just bomb that thing back to the Stone Age. What's Israel threatening to do right now? I forget. Tell me. To bomb the nuclear plants in Iran back to the Stone Age. Yep. I saw in the vision, I was by the river Ulai. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. What's that? Medo-Persia. 
So he's not seeing Babylon anymore because Babylon will be gone by that point. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last, like the bear leaning on one side of the Medo-Persian Empire. They were not equal. Verse 4, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. That's Medo-Persia conquering everything. But he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering suddenly a male goat, that's Alexander the Great, representing the Grecian Empire, came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. That horn is Alexander the Great himself. It was at least Alexander the Mediocre, but he had a high opinion of himself. Verse 6, Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. There was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Why? Because God had decreed it. Therefore the male goat, that's Greece, grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. Alexander the Great died. And in place of it, four notable ones, that's his four generals, each took a fourth of the empire, came up toward the four winds of heaven. If a general gets a fourth of the empire, what does he want? The rest of it, yeah. And out of them came a little horn. There's the false messiah again, the Antichrist, the beast of Revelation 13, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Only this is not actually the Antichrist. This is one who foreshadows him. It's a prophecy of him. We call him what? Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus, who is God. That's what he called himself. His best friends called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means the madman. But he is the one that in the book of Daniel teaches us about the false Messiah who is to come. It's he who goes into the temple of God and sacrifices a sow pig and puts up a, an abomination of desolation in the temple thousands of years ago, as the false Messiah will do. And it grew up to the host of heaven and cast down some of the hosts, some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. They slaughtered those that were faithful to God in the temple, on the temple mount, and anywhere else they could find them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. What will the false Messiah do in the middle of the tribulation? Take away the sacrifices. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Can you imagine... What happens when he sacrifices a pig on the altar of God? Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He forbid the keeping of Torah. He did all this and prospered. That's enough to say, that's the way God describes these empires in three different prophecies. Now let's go back to Zechariah, where we have a fourth way they're described. As four horns who did what? Verse 19, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. The Babylonian captivity continued under Medo-Persia. Israel was trampled under the feet of Greece and Rome. Yeah. So verse 21. Whoops, verse 21st. 
Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. What are craftsmen? People who what? Who build stuff. Who transform things. They can be carpenters. They can be goldsmiths. But the important thing is those four horns are going to get crafted. So verse 20, Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I said, What are these coming to do? So he said, These are the horns to scatter Judah, referring to the four horns up above, so that no one could lift up his head that is to be restored back to power and nationhood. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. Quick, do you know what they are? They, you can think of them like the four horsemen. Who overthrew Babylon? Medo-Persia. That's the first craftsman. So the second horn is the first craftsman. Who overthrew Medo-Persia? Greece, that's the second craftsman. Who overthrew Greece? Rome, that's the third craftsman. Who overthrows Rome? Messiah, the messianic kingdom is the fourth craftsman. So what these prophecies are doing are walking us through from 2,700 years ago until the time just future when Messiah returns and establishes his kingdom. Zechariah, Zechariah, the Lord remembers, means the Lord remembers the promises that God made to restore Israel back to the land and to send Messiah to be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We will not finish Zechariah until we see that happen. So this is kind of an overview and why the rest of the prophecies of Zechariah are so important. So why does God add in all these details up to it? Why doesn't he just take us to the Messianic kingdom? Mm. So we can see these things fulfilled. A little louder. He doesn't, let anything, he doesn't do anything without letting his prophets know what he's doing. He doesn't do anything without letting his prophets know what he's doing. That same as chapter 3. Yeah. Surely the Lord our God does nothing unless he first reveals it to his servants, the prophets. What should happen to the faith of people as Babylon gets overthrown by Medo-Persia? And they go, hmm, God told us that was going to happen. Then Medo-Persia gets overthrown by Greece. Then Greece gets overthrown by Rome. How many ancient philosophers told us the exact order of the worldwide empires? None. Only God can do that. What does Isaiah say? How do you know the Lord is God? Because only he can tell you the end from the beginning. So as we see these prophecies fulfilled, what should that cause us to believe about the messianic kingdom hasn't come yet? Is it coming? It's coming. At least 85% of the Christian world says, oh, there is no messianic kingdom coming. They've missed the meaning of the prophecies. Yes, Doc? Doesn't Yeshua say the kingdom is among you or within you? Yes, but that kingdom is different from the messianic kingdom. When it says the kingdom of God, that's talking about his power and his influence. As people are coming to him and accepting him as God, they enter into his kingdom, into his rule. And the messianic kingdom then is only initiated at the return of Messiah. Right. That's the physical, physical kingdom. Return. Yeah. 
So there's both a spiritual aspect that's going on now and a physical aspect that's not yet. So although we're Messianic believers, we are not part of the Messianic kingdom. Not yet. We're part of the kingdom of God. You're part of the kingdom of God, but not of the Messianic kingdom on earth, the millennial that's kingdom. That's good to know that. Excellent. Okay. Hey, we finished verse 21, so we finished chapter 1. Everybody go, yay! Let's go to chapter 2. Verse 1, then I raised my eyes and looked. Here comes another vision. And behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. We know from verse 7, no, from verse 3, that this is not just a man, but it's an angel. The word angel just means messenger. And even the angels of heaven often appear to people like they're just mortal men. Even the New Testament says when you entertain strangers, you may have entertained an angel unawares. Hmm, I guess we should go around poking more people. Poke, poke. I don't know. But this is an angel. It says, so I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. At the time that Zechariah writes, what's the status of Jerusalem? It's in ruins, yeah. But the prophecies told us this is not talking about Zechariah's day. This is talking about the time of the Messianic kingdom, that fourth craftsman. So let's go to Ezekiel chapter 40. Where we're going to read about the measuring that takes place. Ezekiel chapter 40 is about the future, not the past. Start in verse 1. In the 25th year of our captivity, how long is the captivity going to be? 70 years. At the beginning of the year, so it's the Feast of Trumpets. On the 10th day of the month, oh, it's Yom Kippur. If the first day of the month is on the tenth day of the month, it's a year of jubilee. So it's a very interesting year. On the tenth day of the month, which is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. In the fourteenth year after the city was captured, on the very same day the hand of the Lord was upon me and he took me there. Where? To Jerusalem. In the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. On it toward the south was something like the structure of a city. He took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. So this is the same measuring that Ezekiel sees, that Zechariah sees also, about the same time. So it's about the Jerusalem of the future as the Lord's about to return. Let's go to Revelation chapter 11 where we see another measuring. Revelation chapter 11 is right at the midpoint of the tribulation period. And John's going to have to do the measuring. 
Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and of those who worship there. Why? What's the point? What does measuring it mean? A little louder. Uh, it physically is, is there physically. It's there physically. It has to be. The temple has to be there. Jerusalem has to be there. That's absolutely correct. But when you measure it, he's looking at which of the area is dedicated to God. Because we're going to find on the temple mount, there's also going to still be the Dome of the Rock, which is not given over to God. So there's going to be a shared temple mount at that time says, rise, measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Verse 2, but leave out the court which is outside the temple. That's where the Dome of the Rock stands. And do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. So measure the portion that is God's, but don't include the portion that belongs to the pagans. What is God calling the Muslims here? Pagans, Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months, which is how long? Three and a half years. So from the midpoint, for three and a half years, the Gentiles are going to tread down the holy city. What happens at the end of those three and a half years? Messiah returns and takes back possession and control. Verse 3 says, and I'll give power to my two witnesses. Please make note of that verse. You're going to see that again as we read through Zechariah. And they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These two witnesses testify in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Who are those? Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Yeah. As we read on in Zechariah, God's going to make that clear. Who testifies of Messiah in the scriptures? The law and the prophets. Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets. So we may as well read verse 4 because you're going to see it again in Zechariah. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Zechariah 4 talks about the two olive trees and the two lampstands but doesn't tell us who they are. You have to wait until Revelation. But I gave it away. Shame on me. I have no self-control. So let's go back to Zechariah. Verses 3 and 4. And there was the angel who talked with me. Just like in Revelation, the angel was talking to John. Going out. And another angel was coming out to meet him. Who said to him, run, speak to this young man. This young man is Zechariah. Zechariah. Saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. Why will Jerusalem be as towns without walls? Because it grows too large for the walls. It expands beyond the walls. Also because they believe they're in peace and safety and don't need walls. That's true too. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 54. It also tells us that Jerusalem's going to expand beyond its current walls. It's actually when Messiah comes back. Yeah. Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 through 5. 
The barren one in chapter 54 is Jerusalem. So sing, O barren, you who have not born, that is, one who has no children. For almost 2,000 years, Jerusalem had its people in captivity, right? So like a barren woman without child. Break forth in his singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. So when the Lord regathers Israel back to the land, Jerusalem itself is going to be shocked by how many there are. Why? We know how many Jews there are in the world. But the Jews, they're the ones from the tribe of Judah. The ten lost tribes, where are they? Everywhere. Everywhere. The problem is, you could be from the ten lost tribes and just don't know it. But God knows. He knows what tribe everybody comes from. Verse 2 says, Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. That is, increase the land. The land in which Jerusalem sits is too small to hold them all. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. What are we talking about? Curtains, cords, and stakes. Tents or a tabernacle. What does tabernacle mean? Dwelling with. Dwelling with the Lord. If you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. So Jerusalem is going to spread out until it just encompasses what's today Jordan and Lebanon and the land surrounding. Too large for its walls. Go back to Zechariah. Talking about the original promise of land to Abraham. Yes, it eventually is going to stretch out there. Yep. Mm-hmm. They've never had all that land, but they will. And that's what it's talking about. So, and when the Psalm 83 war is over, Israel's going to push out to cover what was Lebanon and Jordan, etc. And it's going to push out to the borders that God promised her before. They'll be cleaning up the mess in, in all that area, won't they? Yeah. And how will the Muslim world react when Israel pushes out its border into what was Muslim territory? That will cause the Battle of Gog and Magog. I thought that pretty well wiped it out. Nope, Psalm 83 of the Muslim nations that share a border with Israel. The Battle of Gog and Magog are all the Muslim nations that don't share a border. Because one of the main tenets of Islam is that you cannot allow land that was held by Muslims to be held by Jews or Christians. Because if you do, you're admitting that Allah is not greater than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's what will cause the Psalm 83 war to be followed by the Battle of Gog and Magog of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Okay, back to Zechariah chapter 2. We're up to verse 5. Woohoo, we're on a move now. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. So the wall of fire, the wall is the protection. The protection for Israel is going to be the Lord. When he dwells in the midst of the Messianic kingdom, will there be war in the Messianic kingdom? Not till the very end. How do we know? Let's look at Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2. Is that shielding Israel or shielding Jerusalem? The Lord's kind of looking at Jerusalem and Israel as the same at this point. Okay. 
because all of Israel is going to keep flowing up to Jerusalem. Yeah. Isaiah 2, verse 1. For those of you that are new, get your pencil ready because you've got to fix your Bible. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. Now she's turning and saying, oops, I better get ready. <laughs> Isaiah 2, 2 says, now it shall, it's not now, just cross that out his hand. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Do you see that phrase? Scratch that one out. The Hebrew is achrit hayamim. It's the end of days. In a Hebrew published Bible, that's capitalized. It means the same thing as what we would say, the what? Day of the Lord. Starts with the rapture, resurrection, goes through the seven years of tribulation period, then on to the new heavens, the new earth. That the mountain of the Lord's house, what's a mountain in prophecy? Kingdom. Kingdom. Remember in Daniel we read that the stone becomes a huge mountain that overshadows the world. So the mountain of the Lord's house, his kingdom, shall be established on the top of the mountain, shall be exalted above the hills, which means it's over every other nation of the world, large or small. What's Messiah called in Revelation 19? King of kings and Lord of lords. So all the other nations that still exist will be subservient to the Messianic kingdom, to Messiah. It says, in, excuse me, all nations shall flow to it. Which nations? All nations. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. What's that house? That's the temple. He, that's Messiah who rules and reigns there, will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah, the law. I thought the law was abolished. Didn't Paul abolish it? No. Messiah is going to teach it to whom? The whole world. And the word Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. I don't know why that's necessary since we live in a world of peace and harmony where there is no... Yeah, I can't say it with a straight face either. Yeah. Not only does Isaiah 2 say this, but go to Micah chapter 4. One's prophesying in the north, one in the south, God bless you, but they have the same message. Micah. What's Micah chapter 5 about? The birth of Messiah in Bethlehem, that's right. Come on, Micah. You're still in here. There we go. Micah 4. Now it shall come to pass in the, not latter days, but the end of days, the Achrit Hayamim, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountain, shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the Torah, the law, shall go forth. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. 
They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Boy, what a precious promise. Back to Zechariah chapter 2, verse 5. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. What does that mean? Messiah will physically dwell there. Think back to the wilderness. Messiah dwelt right in the center of the camp of Israel, above the tabernacle, in a cloud of fire or a pillar of smoke depending upon whether it was day or night. He couldn't dwell with them physically. Why? They couldn't handle it. Even when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, they had to put a veil over his face because they couldn't stand the glory of God. They were not ready for it. But go to Ezekiel 43, when the Lord returns in the future, he will bear the glory of God. It tells us so in Ezekiel 43. Remember we turned to Ezekiel 40 a minute ago about measuring the temple and the city of Jerusalem and those who dwell there. In chapter 43, Messiah comes to sit in that temple to rule and reign. Ezekiel 43, verse 1. After he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. That's the eastern gate. That's the gate that... Um, how do I put it that people don't get confused? The Ottoman Turkish ruler, Suleiman the Magnificent. Sometimes people think I'm saying Solomon like King Solomon. But Suleiman the Magnificent put a Muslim graveyard in front of the Eastern Gate saying that Messiah, being an Orthodox Jew, would not walk through a graveyard. So therefore, I kept Messiah from coming. But Zechariah tells us that the mountain's going to split in two and half that graveyard's going north, half of it's going south. Verse 2, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. Just think of Matthew chapter 17, where Peter, James, and John got to see in a vision the transfiguration that's what Ezekiel is seeing here. His voice was like sound of many waters, verse 2. That's the way Messiah's voice is described in the book of Revelation. The earth shone with his glory means it's not just limited to Israel, but it shines around the world. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the visions I saw by the river Chabar, and I fell on my face. At the river Chabar, Ezekiel saw God on his throne. When Messiah returns, it's the same God that Ezekiel saw sitting on his throne. The same God that Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw sitting on his throne. As Isaiah saw a picture of the rapture in a vision. The same thing as Revelation 4. And then in chapter 43, go on down to verse 5. Well, we may as well go to 4. I mean, let's just keep reading. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. See, he's coming through the eastern gate after that graveyard goes away. 
thought he was in the graveyard shift. Yeah. <laughs> the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. The inner court of what? Of the temple. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me and said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne. This is where Messiah will rule and reign for the messianic kingdom here on earth. In the place of the soles of my feet. The my feet refer to ownership and possession. To show you owned a piece of land these days in Israel, you walked it. If you transferred the land, you gave the sandal with which you'd walked it to the person who bought it. Why will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel for how long? Forever. So this has not happened yet. This is yet future and not very far in the future. How many of you listened to Monty Judah last night? He again spoke about the fact that those red heifers, if they're not slaughtered this spring, they're going to get too old. Will we be here to see them slaughtered? Ask me in October. It says, no more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, they nor their kings, etc. Okay, let's go to Zechariah chapter 14. I know we're in Zechariah chapter 2, but by the time we get to 14, we'll have forgotten what we said anyway. Verses 16 to 21. How many people have told you that the feasts of Israel are not for the church? Everybody. Yeah, but there are no feasts of Israel. They're called the feasts of the Lord. They belong to the Lord. But look at verse 16, Zechariah 14, 16. When we come to verse 16, the battle of Armageddon is over and Messiah is sitting on the throne. Remember Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 said all the nations are going to come up to Jerusalem? Here it is again. It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations, the word nations means what? Gentiles. Which came against Jerusalem, that's for the battle of Armageddon shall go up from year to year, which means every year, to worship the king. Who's that? That's Messiah Yeshua, the Lord of hosts. Is Messiah the Lord of hosts? Yes. Every time you see it in scripture, he's the Lord of hosts. And to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. What does the Feast of Tabernacles prophesy? The Millennial Kingdom. God dwelling amongst us. Emmanuel. And it shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If there's no rain, there's no food. Which means they're coming. Who's coming? They're all coming. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 verse 4. Revelation 20, verse 4. In Zechariah, it said, The Lord is going to rule and reign right amongst us. Revelation 20, verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. This is for the gleanings, the last of the first resurrection, those who were not saved at the rapture of Revelation 4, but got saved during the tribulation period, but died as martyrs. Here they're getting their judgment. 
Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Yeshua and for the word of God. Remember Revelation 14, 12, the saints what? Keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Same thing here. Who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands and they lived and reigned with Messiah for a thousand years. Let me teach you something about biblical Hebrew. A thousand years and one thousand years are not the same thing. A thousand years is a rounded number. 1,000 is a specific number. So the day of the Lord is 1,000 years, but the first seven years are the tribulation period. The last 993 years are the kingdom on earth. Instead of saying 993, they just say 1,000, because that's what it rounds to, right? And if that's the case, there should be a picture in the Old Testament. How long did David reign in Hebron? Seven years, then brought the kingdom to Jerusalem. Yeah. So Messiah's total reign is 1,000 years, but the first seven are in heaven. Then it comes to the earth. Let's go also to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66. The Lord will come and will dwell on this earth. And all the preachers that want to say, no, he's not returning, they're just wrong. Isaiah chapter 66, starting in verse 18. Verses 14 to 17 describe the tribulation period and the battle of Armageddon. So verse 18, we come to the end of the tribulation period. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. That's the glory we read about in Ezekiel and Zechariah. I will set a sign amongst them. That's Messiah. He's the banner. He's the drawing one. And those among them who escape, I will send to the nations, to Tarshish and Pool and Lude, who draw the bow and Tubal and Javan. These are just nations, Gentile nations to the west. To the coastlands afar off, who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory amongst the Gentiles. Then they shall bring all your brethren... They're going to bring them back to Jerusalem. For an offering to the Lord out of all nations, on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. As the children of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel into the house of the Lord, I'll take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will, shall remain before me, says the Lord. And how long is that? How long will the new heavens and earth remain? Forever. So shall your descendants and your name remain. That's Israel. Israel will remain forever. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Who's going to keep Shabbat in the kingdom? Everybody. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who've transgressed against me. What about corpses? They're dead. Yeah. And their worm does not die. 
The worm refers to their essence, that is, they're still alive in the lake of fire. And their fire is not quenched. They should be an abhorrence to all flesh, which means anyone who looks into the lake of fire to see the suffering are going to just be sick at their tummies. So that we'll be able to, those in the Yep. Yep. It's actually in the new heavens and the new earth that it happens. Mm-hmm. Is the lake of fire uh, still here right now? Yep. And where is that? The Bible doesn't say except it implies that it's at the center of the earth, down in the molten core. Because what is that molten core? It's liquid like a lake. And yet it's so hot, it's burning with fire. If you don't believe me, just look at a volcano. That's some of it getting spit out. Let's look also in Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah 12 is a beautiful prophecy. Isaiah 12 tells us when this is all going to happen. So let me give you a chance to turn there. Isaiah 12. And in that day, what day? The day of the Lord. You will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you are angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. What does the name Yeshua mean? Salvation. So it's going to say, God is Yeshua, Yeshua is God. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yah the Lord is my strength and my song, and he also has become my salvation, my Yeshua. Therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That's the origin of the Simchat Beit HaShoivah ceremony that they were doing in John chapter 7, pouring out the water from the pool of Siloam by the altar and praying for the living waters when Messiah stood up and said, he who believes in me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, which he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, and in that day, what day? Day Day of the Lord. You will say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples, make mention that his name is exalted. Oh, what does Jeremiah mean? What does it mean? The Lord exalts. Sing to the Lord. In Revelation chapter 5, we see the song that's being sung by the raptured and redeemed saints, praising Messiah for his saving graces. For he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Should actually read, make this known in all the earth. Cry out and shout to inhabitant of Zion. Here's the key. For great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. Who's the Holy One of Israel? That's our Messiah Yeshua. Where will he be? In the midst of Jerusalem. Okay, let's go back to Zechariah. Chapter 2, verse 6. Up, up. What's up, up mean? Get up. Flee from the land of the north, says the Lord. For I spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. 
So what does it mean, up, up, flee from the land of the north? It means be regathered back into the land. The Lord is going to regather the outcasts from wherever they were spread. It's the second regathering. The first regathering was at the end of the Babylonian captivity when just a small portion of Israel returned. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 11, which describes this second regathering. The one that is a complete regathering, bringing all the people back to the land. Isaiah 11, 11, and no, you can't go to Isaiah 22. That's not the same thing. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. Let me give you a chance to get there. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. It shall come to pass in that day. What day? Day of the Lord. So it keeps telling us we're looking at this same time. That the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. Why just a remnant? Zechariah says by the end of the tribulation period, two-thirds of Israel will have perished. One-third will come through refined as if gone through the fire. So to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamat, the islands of the sea, the only thing you need to know is that's the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. So from wherever the people were spread. You will set up a banner for the nations. That banner is Messiah. That's the rallying point. You will assemble the outcasts of Israel. That's the northern kingdom that went into captivity 2,700 years ago and have not come out yet. And gathered together the dispersed of Judah that were dispersed by the Romans in 70 AD, 70 common era, when the temple was destroyed. From the four corners of the earth, that's why the nations up above the four corners. Also the envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. As Ezekiel 37 tells us, they're going to become one nation again, never more to be divided. They'll be under one king, and that's our Messiah, Yeshua. Hmm. Let's look at verse 16. We'll, we'll skip a few verses for time. There shall be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria, as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. That is, if you remember in Isaiah, it says that Assyria and Egypt will be like one nation with Israel. They'll be like one people serving the Lord with one heart. And that highway that goes down from Assyria to Egypt is called the Via Maris. The way of the sea, as is translated in Isaiah. When it actually should not have been translated, it's just the Via Maris. That's the name of the road. That regathering is also described in Matthew chapter 24. People of the post-tribulation rapture view generally base it upon Matthew 24 without realizing Matthew 24 doesn't describe the rapture at all. Rather, what's being described in Matthew 24 is the second regathering that we just read in Isaiah 11, 11. So go to Matthew chapter 24 to verse 29. And remember how in Isaiah 11 it talked twice about the four points of the compass, the four winds of heaven. 
Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, so the tribulation period has come to an end, Armageddon's over. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That word earth also can refer just to the land of Israel. And it makes me think of Zechariah 12.10 which says, And then they shall see me whom they pierced and mourn from as one mourns for an only son. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's Revelation 19.11. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. That's the shofar hagadol in Hebrew. Shofar hagadol. The great trumpet. There are three trumpets that Israel gives a name to. The first trumpet was sounded in Exodus 19 when Israel was betrothed to God. The last trumpet sounds for the rapture and the resurrection at the Feast of Trumpets. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. And then the Shofar Haggadol, the great trumpet, sounds when Messiah returns for Armageddon to regather in all the nations. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's Isaiah 11, 11. Let's look also at Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Which describes the same event as Matthew 24, but a little differently. Was Mark there to hear Messiah speak? No. Then how did Mark learn what he learned? Learned it from Peter. That's right. So he's heard Peter talking about Messiah's teachings, and he's written down what he can remember. Mark 13, verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, so the tribulation periods come to an end, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then it will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. See that word glory that we saw back in Zechariah? Then it will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of heaven to the farthest part of heaven, which means as far across the world as people are scattered, even as far as, oh, I don't know, Jasper, Georgia. Okay, back to Zechariah. When you uh, talks about the sun darkened moon. Sun darkened moon won't give its light? Yeah, that is, uh, is that um, sort of connected to Joel? Yes. Joel I think it's Joel 2. two. Yeah. yeah, it was, there are signs in the heavens. And it's talking about solar eclipses and lunar eclipses and other events in the sun, moon, and stars. What's the next event to happen in the sun, moon, and stars? At the end of August is a super blue moon. Not only a super blue moon, but also the planet Saturn will be just a degree or two off of it, such as going to make it look brighter than any moon you have ever seen. It's never been like this. And then shortly thereafter, we're going to have a solar eclipse that's a ring of fire. That is a very rare event. 
One is a warning to Israel, one's a warning to the nations that things are coming. Oh, exciting. Okay, back to Zechariah. Verse 7. Verse 6 said, up, up, flee from the land of the north. Verse 7 just continues it. Up, Zion, escape, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Which means, come back to the land. For thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? In times prophecy. Thus says the Lord of hosts. He sent me after glory. To the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. In the tribulation period, is God going to pour out his wrath on the nations that have come to destroy Israel? Oh, you betcha. And let's go look at Deuteronomy 32 for a minute. Deuteronomy 30 starts talking about the regathering. Let's go to 32, which is another song of Moses. In Zechariah 2, 8, remember it says, He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Look at Deuteronomy 32, verses 9 to 10. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in a wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. So this is an old way to refer to Israel as the apple of God's eye. It means something about which he's particularly concerned, like a most prized possession. And go to Proverbs chapter 7, verse 2. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 2. If God describes Israel as the apple of his eye, meaning a most prized possession, there's something else he describes the same way. Proverbs 7, 2, Keep my commands and live, and my law, my Torah, as the apple of your eye. So how does God want us to look at the Torah? Like a most prized possession. Thought that was kind of neat. Back to what's that? Back to Zechariah two nine. Zechariah two nine. For surely, is this a maybe? Oh no. For surely I will shake my hand against them. That's the wrath of God being poured out. What's the Hebrew word for that? The za'am. Does the rapture come before or after the za'am gets poured out? Rapture first. Give me scripture. Isaiah 26. Let's turn to Isaiah 26 and then we'll look back at Zechariah and finish that verse. Isaiah 26. 
My Bible used to just fall open to Isaiah. It just did. Isaiah 26, verses 19 to 21. Isaiah 26, starting in verse 19. Oops, I see a number one out there. Let me check it while y'all are turning. Susie asks, is this referring to believers and the land? The answer is yes. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live. How could dead people live? The resurrection. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. My is Isaiah. Isaiah says when a rapture comes and a resurrection, I'm going. Awake and sing. That's Revelation chapter 5, the song of the redeemed. You who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people. That's why it's not just the resurrection, but also the rapture, because not all God's people will have died. Come, my people, enter your chambers. That word chamber is chadar, C-H-A-D-A-R. It's the bridal chamber. Remember John 14, 2? In my Father's house are many Man. bridal chambers. Yeah. It says mansions, but then there's a little asterisk that says, well, it's not really mansions. Yeah, it's referring to the bridal chambers. And shut your doors behind you. Remember, Noah and his family went on the ark, and then what happened? The door shut. And seven days later, the rain came and everyone else died. Shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation, the za'am, the wrath of God in the tribulation period is passed. So where are God's people when the tribulation judgments are being poured out, the wrath of God? They're in the bridal chamber. That's in heaven. Verse 20, for behold, the Lord comes out of his place. Once the indignation is over, Messiah returns in Revelation 19.11 to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. That's lawlessness. Talking about the nations that came to destroy Israel. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. Alright, back to Zechariah because I didn't finish the verse. I got too excited. Sorry. Verse 9. Give you a chance to get back there. For surely I will shake my hand against them. That's the nations that came against Israel for the battle of Armageddon. Psalm 2 tells us they come because they don't want Messiah to return. They refuse to allow God to rule and reign over the earth. And they shall become spoiled for your servants, which means their plot's going to fail and they're going to die. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. At that point, Israel has all been saved. Those who didn't get saved died. Let's go to Zechariah 14 to see a greater description of this event and when it takes place. First Zechariah 14 verses 1 through 4. Behold, which means what? Shut up and listen. This is really important. Don't miss this. The day of the Lord is coming. What does it say in 2 Peter 3? That by the time the Lord comes, a lot of the people that claim to be Christians are going to be saying, ah, oh, he's not coming. 
You hear any of that today? Oh, there's no rapture. The Lord's not coming for us. Oh, yes, he is. And your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. That means the United Nations is coming. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half the city shall go into captivity. What does the United States, United Nations, and the rest of the world demand Israel give to the Palestinians? Half of Jerusalem. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. That's Revelation 19. Messiah returns. The day of battle is Armageddon. And in that day, what day? day of the Lord, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. That's how half the graveyard goes north, half of it goes south. Making a very large valley, half the mountain shall move toward the north, half of it toward the south. Well, Saladin was right. Messiah is not going through the graveyard. Look at the last of verse 5. From, in my Bible, it sets it apart from the rest. It says, thus the Lord my God will come. How are they describing Yeshua? The Lord my God. Verse 6 says, it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. That's the sun going dark and the moon going dark that we just read about. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord. So people keep saying, well, the Lord hasn't decided when yet. What's the scripture say? It was known to the Lord back in Zechariah's day. He knows. Neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. I wanted to go through there because of the Jewish commentaries, which say that word light means the light of salvation. That this is the point when salvation comes to the earth. If they only realize that Yeshua means salvation, they're right. The light of Yeshua is coming. And look at verses 12 to 15, just because I know you've all watched the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. And this shall be the plague which, with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. If you ever wonder where they got that scene in the movie, this is where they got it. Go back to Zechariah chapter 2. We're up to verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. No doubt in that verse, is there? No hesitation. The Lord is coming. He is returning. The first scripture I'd have us turn to is Isaiah 12, verses 1 through 6, except we just read it. So just put in your notes. If we hadn't already read it, we'd be going to Isaiah 12. So let's go to Ezekiel chapter 37. I told him when we read in Isaiah that Ezekiel chapter 37 also describes it. Let's go look. We'll do the short version. But just remember Isaiah 11 about Ephraim and Judah not envying or fighting anymore but being one nation in the hand of the Lord. 
Ezekiel 37, verse 21. Verse 21. Let me give you a chance to get there. Ezekiel 37, verses 21 to 28. Ezekiel 37, starting in verse 21. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations. There's that second regathering we just read about. Wherever they have gone, even to Jasper, Georgia, and will gather them from every side, that's the four points of the compass, and bring them into their own land. That's not New York, by the way. That's Jerusalem, into Israel. I'll make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. Hasn't been that way since the death of King Solomon. How many kings ruled over all 12 tribes? Two, David and Solomon. Saul didn't rule over all the tribes, which is a shocker, isn't it? Yeah. One king shall be king over them all. That's our Messiah Yeshua. Like in John 10, one shepherd, one king, one leader will follow the one. Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 said he will teach us his way and will walk in it. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they sinned, and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them. Is it actually David, or is it David's descendant? <coughs> David's descendant, Messiah. Yeah, in Matthew ch chapter 1, God gives the genealogies down to Joseph, and he divides it into three sets of 14 names, right? It says three sets of 14 names. The word 14 in Hebrew is, can be spelled Dalit Vav Dalit, which is David. They shall all have one shepherd. That's what John 10 says. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and what? And do them. Remember last night we were reading in, in Jeremiah, hey, we have the law. And God's saying, well, you ought to think about doing it. Here, they're going to do it. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to, my, to Jacob my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And Isaiah 66, if you remember, said that forever means into the new heavens and new earth without end. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. That's the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31 on Hebrews 8. And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. What's everlasting mean? Forever. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst. How long? Forevermore. What's it tell us in Revelation? Who's going to sit in that sanctuary? Messiah will. Forever. Oh, I've read too far. But I'm just having too much fun. Go to Ezekiel 43. 
We stopped earlier at verse 7, but we're going to read verses 7 through 9. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, they nor their kings by their harlotry, that's idolatry he's referring to, or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places, that's idol worship. When they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost with the wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry and the carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. But notice we won't be divided by a wall anymore. We won't be separated where we can't approach God. In the eternal kingdom, in the new heavens and new earth, we will have access to go up and sit at Messiah's feet and learn and sing and worship. Let's look at Revelation 21 verse 3. It's going to tell us the same thing. Revelation 21, verse 3. Revelation 21, 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, What's that word saying? It's a quote. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Dwelling together, no walls to separate. No intermediary. Let's go back to Zechariah chapter 2. Yes, ma'am. On verse 4. Yeah. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's in the new heavens and the new earth. Not at the rapture through the millennial kingdom, but at the end. In the new heavens and new earth. I would like to think that at the rapture and resurrection we won't remember our loved ones that are left behind, but we will. And you know what? We're still going to pray our hearts out. That they're going to come to the Lord while there's yet time. I'm sure we all have loved ones that just refuse to come to the Lord now. They were taught in school about evolution and there is no God and it's all a lie. And your parents just use this to manipulate you. But when a rapture comes and they see the soles of your feet zipping out of here, they may go, you know what, maybe I should have listened to mom and dad. There are preachers out there who say, after the rapture and resurrection, no one can be saved. Is that what the Bible says? No. no. Turn to Revelation chapter 7. It says, countless multitudes will be saved. 
And they're saved because of three things. Number one, they see the rapture and realize that all those things we tried to tell them were right. Number two, that there's 144,000 Jewish witnesses that are going to be sealed by God and they're going to preach for seven years throughout the world. Number three, there's the two witnesses at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem that are going to be broadcast around the world because it says the whole world sees them when they're killed. And I guess there's a number four. There's also a, described in the scripture an angel that's flying around and around the earth preaching the gospel for the tribulation period. So they will have plenty of reason to say, you know, I should go read the Bible. I had one. Maybe I should have opened it. Doesn't that um, teaching, of course, you know, churches divide over one half of one tenth of one verse. Um, but doesn't that teaching hinge on the, some scripture talking about the Holy Spirit being removed? From the earth? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, You know what is restraining? Restraints until he's taken away. And those churches say, Well, the, clearly is the Holy Spirit. And since the Holy Spirit's taken away, no one can be saved. But now let's read Revelation 7 and see what the Bible says. But actually, what, what is the restraining? Restrainer of the believers. Yeah, it's always vague. Some of those words are just kind of like, yeah. Okay, and somebody says, Oh, it's this. Yeah. Let's make a doctrine. Yeah, the, the Gospels say you and I, the believers in Messiah, are the salt and the light. We are what restrains the Antichrist from being able to just run to and fro. And what is the message of the Antichrist? Lawlessness. And what are we preaching? Righteousness. Yeah. So in Revelation 7, verse 9. Right after the 144,000 get sealed and begin preaching. That's the reason it's in the same chapter. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. These were not saved when the rapture came in chapter 4 but because the gospel is continuing to be preached People are still getting saved. These are not the people that have been resurrected. No, they are not. They were in chapters 4 and 5. But that's where, again, that's where error could come in. Yeah. Relating these to that. Yeah. To fit the other, to fit the other doctrine. That, yeah. Okay. But as we go to verse 13, it's going to tell us who they were. Yeah. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So they were not saved when the rapture came in chapter 4. They got saved and were martyred for their faith. If you read the novels, Left Behind series, people are killed with a guillotine. Have you noticed in the news over the last decade or so, even our government has been storing guillotines by the tens of thousands, and one of those big storage places is in Georgia. Why are they storing guillotines? Hmm. What's that? There are coffins too. There are coffins too, yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. 
I'm sorry, I digress. Let's go back to Zechariah. So don't give up on your family members that you love who will not come to the Lord now. There's still hope. Zechariah 2, verse 10. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. What day? Or what did we read in Isaiah 2 and Micah 4? The nations are going to come up to worship the Lord, to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, to learn Torah from Messiah himself. Who gave the commandments in the first place? Messiah did. So who knows them best? He does. So Isaiah 2 and Micah 4. But let's read the rest of the verse 11. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. And I will dwell in your midst. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. In addition to Isaiah 2 verses 2 and 4 and Micah 4 verses 1 to 3 that we already read. Let's add to it Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19. Verses 18 to 25. Isaiah 19, verses 18 to 25. In that day, what day? Day of the Lord. So that tells us the time period. We're still talking about the time of the tribulation period. Five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan. How many commentaries say, well, obviously that's Greek? Eh, wrong answer. What is it? It's Hebrew. And swear by the Lord of hosts. That's our Messiah Yeshua. One will be called the city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. And a pillar to the Lord at its border. How many have seen the movie The Ten Commandments? As they're leaving Egypt, they go by the big pillars those pillars tell you who the gods are of the nation. So Egypt will say the Lord is our God. He's God here. Is that like Egypt today? No, there's going to be a big change in the world. It will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors. He will send them a savior and a mighty one and he will deliver them. When they call out to the Lord, what's he do? He responds. So Egypt is going to cry out during a persecution? Is this during the tribulation? Yeah, it's at the battle of Gog and Magog. We'll look in a minute. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. We'll make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. Now that tells you who struck them. They will return to the Lord. What's it mean to return to the Lord? To repent. And he will be entreated by them and healed them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. 
and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land. Remember I talked about the Via Maris that connects them? Verse 25 says, Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. Now let me show you when it takes place. Go to Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel 38 is the battle of Gog and Magog. The Psalm 83 war is over. The nations, there were Muslim nations that shared a border with Israel were conquered in the Psalm 83 war. And that causes the battle of Gog and Magog where the Muslim nations that do not share a border with Israel attack Israel. We'll start in verse 18. We'll just do the short version. Ezekiel 38 verse 18. And it will come to pass at the same time, which is in that day we're going to see in a minute, when Gog comes against the land of Israel. Gog is Russia and Iran and Turkey, leading the Muslim nations that don't share a border, that will come from Syria and attack Israel at the Golan Heights. If you look today, the Golan Heights is claimed by Syria. It's held by Israel, but on the other side of the Golan is Damascus, where you see Turkey, Iran, and Russian troops ready for this battle. When Gog comes to the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy and the fire of my wrath I have spoken, surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. So that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. At what? My presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. That is the invading armies in the fog of war turn on each other. When we have joint operations today, we have something called IFFs, right? Indicate friend or foe. If those things stop working, you don't know whether the tanks and airplanes coming or yours or theirs. And that's what's going to happen. The IFFs are going to stop. And all they're going to know is people are coming shooting and they're going to shoot back and they're all going to destroy each other. Verse 22, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone, which is nuclear warfare. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of what? Many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. When the Lord himself personally intervenes and brings that battle to a close, Egypt, Assyria, Israel, and many other nations are going to go, oh my goodness, there is a God in heaven. The Bible is true. People have been telling us this battle was coming and we didn't believe it, but here it is. And what are the Egyptians and Assyrians going to do? They're going to say, bye-bye, Allah. <laughs> you didn't come. Let's go to Isaiah 56. While there's yet time, I can't miss Isaiah 56. 
Because Isaiah 56 tells us which Gentiles will get to come into the kingdom. Wouldn't you like to know that? God has a criteria and he gave it to us right here. How many of you had college professors that at the beginning of the course gave you a copy of the test with the answers circled? Yeah, me neither. But wouldn't that have been nice? But that's what God did. He gives us the answers before we're ever given the questions. Isaiah 56 verse 1. Thus says the Lord. Whose message is this from? Whose message is it? It's the Lord's. Keep justice. That word keep is a command. It means to guard, to protect, to treat as valuable. Keep justice and do righteousness. What's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. Don't do that. For my salvation, my Yeshua is about to come. And my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this. That word man, if you don't know, is Enosh. And it refers to the Jewish people. And the son of man, that word man is Adam. A-D-A-M, Adam. So it's the Jewish people and everybody. Who descends from Adam? Everybody. Jew and Gentile alike, it says. Who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. It says in Exodus 31 that keeping the Sabbath is the oat, the symbol, the sign that we are God's people. Just like this wedding ring tells you that I belong to Becca. That is the sign. And then in verse 6, verses 1 and 2 are everybody. Now verse 6 gets down to the Gentiles in particular in case people say, well, maybe God only meant the Jews. Verse 6, also the sons of the foreigner, that foreigner, that word is nekar, and it means a non-Israelite, a non-Jewish person, somebody from the nations. Used to say Johnny Q. Pagan, but nobody laughed. Okay. Who join themselves to the Lord to serve him. So they've turned away from pagan idolatry to be the servants of the Lord. To love the name of the Lord. To be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, referring to the new covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain. That's Isaiah 2 and Micah 4. That's the Messianic kingdom. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. That's the rebuilt temple with Messiah on the throne. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So who from the nations get to be part of the Messianic kingdom? Those who serve the Lord, who keep from defiling the Sabbath, and holds fast my covenant, which includes the commandments of God. But in the 4th century, at the Council of Laodicea in Canon 29, the Pope said, you're not permitted to keep the Sabbath. You've got to do Sunday instead. Does the Pope have the ability, the power, and the authority to change God's word? Absolutely not. Remember 1 Kings 13 from last night? God does not change his commandments. His words don't change. This year, just as an aside, the Feast of Trumpets is on a Shabbat. 
Wouldn't it be something if the trumpet blows to take those that are keeping Shabbat? Just food for thought. Back to Zechariah. What is that? Okay. Zechariah. I should turn there too, huh? Chapter 2, verse 11. Let's just read that one again because I love it so much. Many nations shall be joined to me in that day. We just read it. It happens at the Battle of Gog and Magog. When they see God intervene personally in the affairs of mankind, he stops the battle. Israel could not stop Gog and Magog. They can defeat the armies in Psalm 83, but the battle of Gog and Magog is so much bigger. If God didn't intervene, Israel would be wiped out, never to be seen from or heard from again. And when God personally intervenes, it says many nations are going to come to recognize that he is God and there is no other. What a day that will be. And they shall become my people. I will dwell in your midst and they shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And who's the Lord of hosts? It's our Messiah, Yeshua. Do they accept Yeshua as Savior? Yes, they do. So verses 12 to 13 say, And the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land. What's it mean take possession of? In Ezekiel 37 it said the place of my shoes. Ownership and possession. When did the earth stop being the Lord's possession? Yes, it did. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? God said, don't do it. The serpent said, do it. And who did they obey? They obeyed the serpent, which made Satan, what he described as in the scripture, the God of this earth. In the tribulation period, God takes it back. So the Lord will take possession of Judas' inheritance and Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem, not New York, not even Washington, D.C., but Jerusalem. It says, be silent, all flesh. This is the important part. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. You know what that means, be silent? It means stop coming against Jerusalem. Stop trying to keep the Lord from returning. If we go to Psalm 2, we see how God will give the same message to the nations that come against Jerusalem to keep the Lord from returning. Psalm 2. We got five minutes. We're going to do the whole psalm. And then we'll see if there's anything left after that. Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The word nations means the Gentiles. Why are the nations, the Gentiles, raging against Jerusalem? And they plot a vain thing. What does a vain thing mean? It ain't going to happen. God won't permit it. The kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth, set themselves together, right? Set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord 
and against his anointed. That's why they're coming against Jerusalem. They want to stop the Lord from returning and ruling and reigning. They don't want to be ruled by God. They don't want to have to follow after God. Saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. Meaning we won't be their servants. We won't be their people. How does God react? That verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, which means the laugh is not a funny laugh. It's a, what do you think you're doing? Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Is that the wrath of God being poured out in the tribulation period? You know it is. It says, yet I have set my king, that's Messiah Yeshua, on my holy hill of Zion. God says, you may be thinking you're going to take it, but it's mine. And he says, I have set. That sounds like past tense. Yeah, that's what's called in biblical Hebrew the prophetic perfect. There is no doubt it's going to happen, so God writes it in the words like they're past tense. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, me being capitalized, talking about Messiah. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Does the Bible say God will have an only begotten son? Yes, right here. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. The ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That's Armageddon. So how much of a chance do the combined armies of the entire world have against the Lord? None. Zero. What's that old expression? There's lots of them. Verse 10. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. This is where it matches up with that last verse of Zechariah 2. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So God's message to the nations is you don't have to be destroyed. You can repent. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So while God decrees destruction... He always first gives a call for repentance. Even to the nations that want to destroy him. He gives them a last chance to repent. Yes, sir? Yes. Yeah, good place. You can put that there. Yep. So what is the battle of Gog and Magog? Why does God come down personally and intervene? It's to give a last opportunity for people to repent, to see the truth. I think the Battle of Gog and Magog takes place about three years into the tribulation period. Six months before the midpoint when Satan indwells the false messiah and takes his seat in the temple. He sets up the abomination desolation 30 days before the midpoint. And the Jews that are believing will flee to Petra because they understand the words of Messiah. 
But that gives them five months from the Battle of Gog and Magog to read the scriptures and see Messiah's call to flee to Petra before the abomination is set up. Then when they see it, they don't have to say, what is this? They know what to do. They go. We still have a minute and a half, so back to Zechariah. Chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Joshua is the high priest that returns back to the land with Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's the governor. He's the descendant of King David. He is the civil ruler under Babylon, of course. And Joshua is the high priest. And as the high priest stands before the Lord, he's not standing before the Lord in innocence. That's why Satan is standing at his right hand to oppose him, to say, hey, 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 he's not qualified to be high priest. He's a sinner. Well, who isn't, right? So, we will get to the cross-references cross next week as we will finish Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 next week, Lord willing, because we've run out of time.